Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, a lot of talk about the president bringing back the uh, the coronavirus briefing, although I um, was a little surprised when he walked into the room and he didn't have anybody with him. But it was, there was no Anthony Fauci, there was no Deborah Burks, there was no Mike Pence, he was actually traveling. But there was, he was alone. Uh, this was This was his show. And, you know, much, most of the discussion is about how uh, the, the guy who has been kind of trying to either avoid talking about the, uh, the, the spike in coronavirus cases around the country uh, or has downplayed the threat was coming out here and telling people that it could get worse. But you know what moment kind of caught me in this briefing, Rick? Do you know what it was? No, I don't. Tell, tell it, us. It, it, it came in the Q&A, and, and when the question was asked... I was kind of surprised. I was like, where did that question come from? I mean, I, I figured there would be lots of questions about the pandemic. There could certainly be questions about what's happening in Portland and all that. And by the way, we have a great guest coming up, a former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, Michael Chertoff is, is in the waiting room. We'll talk about all that with him. But, but you know, I think that those questions, uh, some of the president's, you know, controversial um, uh, comments on, uh, on law and order, on race. But the question that came up was about... Um, Ghislaine Maxwell. Did you hear this? Why don't I just play it? Let's play it. I'm wondering, uh, do you feel that she's going to turn in powerful men? How do you see that working out? I don't know. I haven't really been following her too much. I just wish her well, frankly. Uh, I've met her numerous times over the years, especially since I lived in Palm Beach, and I guess they lived in Palm Beach. Uh, But I wish her well, whatever it is. Uh, I don't know the situation with Prince Andrew. Just don't know. Not aware of it. Whoa, Rick, powerful men. What is that? <laughs> what is that about? Uh, she obviously uh, has been charged with a, with a whole lot of crimes, unseemly ones, and there's a lot of pictures of her around President Trump. A lot to be read into that answer, John. Like trafficking underage girls, right? I mean, yeah. we're talking about this is uh, uh, rather shocking, isn't it? Wish her well, indeed. Wish her well. And I, you know, like, I, I mean, think she, even, she's 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 in jail. She's yeah. not even granting her bail. Uh, charged with these horrific crimes, Jeffrey Epstein, you know, uh, you know, f- uh, facilitating his crimes, um, and he's talking about like almost waxing poetic about the time they spent together down there, uh, you know, in uh, West Palm Beach, um, yeah. and wish her well. What do you think was going on there? I mean, the question I mean, came out. You know, it was not an expected question. I, I didn't. I'm sure the president didn't expect the question either. But is why? Why do you think he would say that? Uh, it, it's it, it is an absolute absolute mystery. Uh, the, the the legal wags can can go on about what information she might have and what she'd be willing to willing to say. And I think John, I mean, it, look, it, it's another reminder that you know whenever this president tries something new, like dare I call it a new tone on on, a, on coronavirus, that he takes himself off track, whether it's a tweet or an answer to a question, because that's you know undeniably because he was of, on track in this press conference. I mean, th- th- this press conference was. You know, he was sober, somber. You know, he repeated some of the same, you know, incorrect information about testing and whatnot. But but he was projecting, I am going to take this seriously, even saying he would put more money into testing as his administration has been trying to block that. Um, but is he is he reminding her that he has pardon power? I mean, what what is going on? Anyway, I, I just that that really, really struck me. Um, there was there was another thing that uh, that I found interesting. So we we had two briefings. 
we had the press secretary in the morning, and then we had Trump in the evening. And the press secretary said something that immediately, you know, I mean, we don't often get a lot of news at these briefings, but she said something that really made everybody in the room say, what? What was that? The president wore a mask in May. The president wore a mask at Walter Reed out of an abundance of caution. But as I've made clear from this podium, the president is the most tested man in America. Um, he's tested more than anyone multiple times a day. Um, and we believe that he's acting appropriately. So did you catch that? She said that the president gets tested multiple times a day. I mean, I don't even Who know does what that, the medical John? <laughs> reason would be. So I was really curious about that. So, well, I asked the president about it. I just wanted to get a clarification. Your press secretary said today that you sometimes take more than one test a day. Well, why is that? And how often? Well, I didn't know about more than one. I do take probably on average a test every uh, two days, three days. And I don't know of any time I've taken two tests in one day, but I could see that happening. Uh, so, so the press secretary says he gets multiple tests a day, and the president says one every two or three, one or two or three days. Rick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a question. You don't have to, you know, I, I don't think you know the definitive answer, but I just want your analysis. Who do you think was accurate there? Uh, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the president on this one. I, I, it doesn't, just doesn't make sense that he'd be tested multiple times a day. Uh, that just seems off. Um, and it seemed, you know, maybe Kaylee was trying to, to, to maybe she misspoke or she went a little too far in, in describing it. It just doesn't, it just doesn't square, especially when, you know, this is a president for months now has been saying anyone who wants a test can get one. It's not the case, um, even to this day. In fact, our colleagues over at 538 have a really interesting analysis about the disparities in testing availability around the country. Um, we've heard even very prominent Republicans talk about how the, the, the wait for either tests or test results right now is unacceptable. It just doesn't, you, you, we're still in a place where lots of, lots of times you got to wait seven or 10 days. That defeats the purpose of a test because you're getting tested often because you want to go do something or be somewhere. Uh, in the meantime, are you going to quarantine? Uh, because you could easily catch it for, for somewhere else. So it, it just doesn't, it, it's a real political soft spot for this White House. And I think the in bragging about how often the president is tested probably doesn't even help that. But I, I, I'm at a loss on this, John. I don't understand what the upside would be in, in claiming that the president is tested even more often than he actually is. Well, I, I think that, you know, the, the context here, she was being asked why the president doesn't wear a mask. And she wanted to be able to say he's the most tested man in America. I get da, 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 da. So it could have been just, you know, an exaggeration to kind of help make her point. But of course... White House press secretary shouldn't be exaggerating things. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's the truth is what the truth is. You know, this is all happening uh, as the, the, the situation in Portland has gotten more and more attention. You know, there's there's a protest there entering you know, the end of the second month straight. Uh, there, there's there been there's been a lot of violence. Uh, there have been attacks on the federal courthouse. And, you know, now you have the, uh, the, the acting secretary of Homeland Security uh, sending in, you know, what look almost like paramilitary groups, uh, but, you know, uh, federal law enforcement officials uh, to defend that courthouse, uh, but also, you know, going in and arresting people on the streets of, or detaining people on the streets of Portland, uh, saying that it may also be done, uh, a similar operation may be happening in Chicago. I mean, there's a lot. So... We're going to take a quick break, but I, I, in an effort to break all of that down, uh, I'm very much looking forward to talking to our next guest, who is uh, Michael Chertoff, 
He was the, uh, the, the second person to hold the job of Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, served under a Republican as a lifelong Republican. Um, and I'm very curious what he has to say uh, about the way the current acting Secretary of Homeland Security and the current president uh, are, are handling all this. We will be back uh, with that conversation in just a moment. All right, joining us now is Michael Chertoff, the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, the executive chairman of the Chertoff Group, and somebody who is, along with 33 other national security leaders, a bipartisan group, uh, signed a letter to congressional leaders urging them in this next stimulus package to provide money to keep U.S. elections safe, secure, and reliable, uh, even in the midst of a pandemic. Secretary Chertoff, thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. My pleasure. So we want to get to uh, your the warning that you are uh, sounding about election security. But first, as you are the former uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, I wanted to ask you about the, this current controversy over uh, the use of, of federal law enforcement troops under the direction of the current acting uh, Secretary of Homeland Security uh, to Portland and suggestions that uh, there could be more of this in other cities, Chicago and other cities. I, I want to ask you that, but, but to set it up, um, I want to play you a, uh, an exchange I had with the uh, press secretary, the White House press secretary, about what exactly they're doing, where they derive the authority. This was Kayleigh McEnany yesterday. Where in the Constitution does the president derive the authority to send federal law enforcement officers to the streets of American cities against the will of the elected officials in those cities. Yes, well, what you're referring to is Portland and 40 U.S. Code 1315 gives DHS the ability to deputize officers in any department or agency, like ICE, Custom and Border Patrol, and Secret Service, quote, as officers and agents, they can be deputized for the duty of, uh, in connection with the protection of property owned or occupied by the federal government and persons on that property. And when a federal courthouse is being lit on fire, commercial fireworks being shot at it, being shot at the officers, I think that that falls pretty well within uh, the limits of 40. U.S. Code 1315. So that's a matter of protecting federal property, like federal courthouses in the case of, of Portland. Does he see limitations to that power? How, how, how much, how far does that power extend into the, into the streets of the city of Portland? How, you know, what, are there limitations on that? So under that, the, that, that authority to protect a federal property. Under the law, we believe that agents can conduct investigations of crimes committed against federal property or federal officers. And in the case where you have someone shooting off a commercial grade firework and then running across the street, we don't believe that that extends past our jurisdiction. Yeah. Okay, so we had a pretty clear answer uh, citing a, a provision of the federal code. And I, I don't think there's much argument that federal uh, law enforcement officers can protect federal property and have, a, in fact, a responsibility to do so. But what we have seen is we've seen, uh, first of all, federal law enforcement officers in what look like almost military-style gear, uh, you know, camo. Uh, and we've seen, or we, we hear reports of them actually detaining, uh, detaining suspects uh, uh, for, for questioning. Uh, not identifying which agency they're with. I, I just, I, I mean, you, you, you ran DHS. I, what, what is your, what is your take on this? I, I think, look, you can protect federal property, but that doesn't mean it's an unlimited license to roam around the streets and pick up people based on some suspicion that maybe they're involved or going to be involved in something. So, in the immediate area adjacent to the federal courthouse or the federal building, obviously you can set up a perimeter to protect it. If someone 
fires a missile at it, you can engage in hot pursuit. But the reports that I've read about roving around on the street and stopping people and uh, taking them down strike me as going beyond that authority. And that's wholly apart from the Fourth Amendment issue. Because whatever the statutory authority is, we still have a constitution. And that requires a reasonable suspicion to stop somebody and probable cause to arrest them. And it's not clear to me that that is being applied in this case. I mean, the problem is you've got um, uh, agents here who are, for the most part, Customs and Border Protection tactical operators. They operate normally in a border environment, which is um, where you're dealing with a, almost, almost a quasi-military situation. That does not translate well into an urban environment with First Amendment protected demonstrators. And um, so the execution of this I think has been a real problem. And, and I, I want to ask you what Acting Secretary Wolf said about this, because we, we've, we've seen, well, in the case of Portland, uh, local officials actually actually trying to go to court to stop this. Uh, we've seen the, the mayor and the governor both say they don't want this. We've seen the mayor of Chicago uh, try to get ahead of what, what appears to be a, a, an effort to do the same thing uh, in, in Chicago. Uh, what, what Chad Wolf said about this uh, on Monday was, I don't need invitations by the state, state mayors or state governors to do our job. We're going to do that whether they like us there or not. That's our responsibility. So putting the, 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 you know, the, the, the legal power that they have, uh, that the federal government has in this, it, what, what do you make of that approach to kind of basically defiantly go out and say, you know, I don't care whether or not the mayor wants me there. I think one of the unfortunate elements of this, which I think frankly hurts the Department of Homeland Security, is that both the president and the acting secretary have taken a very belligerent, aggressive tone towards the state and local officials. And that includes the president getting up and saying, we're going to go after the cities with Democratic mayors which creates the unmistakable impression that this is motivated by political animus as opposed to, you know, kind of a, a dispassionate objective vision of what is necessary to protect federal property. That is something which I think is, is disturbing a number of former senior officials I've talked to. And frankly, it reminds me of the reaction former military officials had when there's an effort, when there was an effort to do something similar in June in Lafayette Park in Washington. Mr. Secretary, I want to talk about this letter that you've written, and it's a pretty extraordinary cross-section of, uh, of uh, former cabinet secretaries and officials, Democrats and Republicans, um, Madeleine Albright, Susan Rice, John Kerry, uh, among them, Tom Ridge, your predecessor at, at DHS. And the case that you're making here is specific to election security. And of course, in this, in this country, elections are run by the state, but they depend on a lot of federal support and resources that are, that are part of that. What is your view now on, the, on the, the level of preparation that states have for elections in the time of pandemic? When you look at the threats that we had, uh, foreign threats included that continue out there, uh, in addition to this new complication that, uh, that that's upon us, where states are drastically, dramatically expanding the ways that people vote. Well, I think we're facing two challenges that are increasing. One is the continued problem of cyber attacks 
and disinformation emanating not only from Russia, but from China and other adversary nations. Um, I, I have no doubt that's going to be stepped up as we approach uh, the November election date. And that's going to create all kinds of challenges to make sure we can protect uh, that voter databases uh, and the tabulation process. Now layer onto that very legitimate concerns people will have about the pandemic. Some of them will not want to go to the polls. Some of them will want to go, but they'll be nervous about whether it is a safe environment. So what what town, what cities and, and counties need to do now is first of all, probably prepare extra polling places, have appropriate capability to distance, distance and sanitize people who are waiting to vote, and also dramatically increase the availability of postal voting, including making sure everybody who needs a ballot gets one in plenty of time, and then to have mechanisms in place to track the ballots when they are received and to make sure that they're counted and tabulated relatively quickly. That means hiring additional individuals, training them, and putting in place the um, supplies you need for the actual ballot papers. We don't have a lot of time left. And so getting the money to state and locals to do this properly, to my mind, is the most urgent task the federal government has right now. Because if we can't defend the right to vote, then we're not defending American values. As you know, Mr. Secretary, the president has been very critical of mail-in voting. Mail-in voting is not new. Uh, it's been expanding for some time. Uh, when you were um, in, the, in President Bush's cabinet, it was something that states were, uh, were, were expanding. Absentee voting has been around a long time, but even mail-in voting has been a, a phenomenon of, uh, of the last couple of decades. Uh, we are now seeing, uh, as I mentioned, almost all the states expand from there. Just yesterday, the president uh, the president tweets, mail-in voting unless changed by the courts will lead to the most corrupt election in our nation's history. Hashtag was rigged election on that one. In your time at DHS, in your, in your view, in your expertise, does he have a point? Is there a reason for concern around mail-in voting? Have you ever seen evidence of, uh, of outright corruption, uh, of, uh, of rigged elections uh, as a result of mail voting? There's zero evidence that mail-in voting creates widespread problems with an election. Occasionally, there may be a handful of votes in a particular election where there's someone has wound up coercing or tricking people into voting a certain way. I actually once prosecuted and convicted a guy for doing that, but it was about 10 votes. It, it, it's not of a scale that could possibly impact on a national election. So there is zero evidence for this. And uh, particularly if we invest properly in getting the right supplies and the right uh, people to do the tabulation, we can minimize even the infinitesimal risk that there is. The important thing is to give people the opportunity to get their vote registered because that is a core element of our democracy. I mean, the, big, the bigger challenge is just making sure that this can all be put in place quickly enough and, and that the system can work efficiently. I mean, we had this uh, situation with the New York primary where the, uh, the ballots uh, were, were sent out with, with, uh, with prepaid you know, postage, postage paid, and as a result, didn't get postmarks. So, don't, so without the postmark, you don't know when it was sent. You don't know if it was sent in time. So you have to, you have to kind of work through uh, issues like that to make sure it's exactly. done efficiently. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, you need to have the planning so, done and and then put the supplies in place. And you need time for that. And that means we got to get the money quickly 
so that we can have that process underway. Yeah, time's running out. So I, before you go, I wanted to ask you an entirely different uh, subject back in your time um, as, I guess it's a related subject actually, uh, it, it, as Secretary of Homeland Security. Um, back in 2005, when uh, I, I've read that uh, President, you were, you were Secretary, President uh, Bush went, uh, was on vacation in Texas <clears throat> at his ranch uh, in Crawford, and he read a book uh, by John Barry, uh, the, the book about the Spanish uh, flu pandemic of 1918, um, and was quite alarmed by what he saw. Um, and, um, you know, of course, this was a, an interesting time because uh, the Iraq war was raging. That vacation, of course, was cut short by Katrina. And, and the president's reading this book, uh, a president who has seen terrorism hit uh, come from out of, you know, out of nowhere, uh, seen a, a hurricane come and do tremendous damage, and is now uh, in this book seeing that uh, every hundred years or so there's a there's a global pandemic that 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 can potentially be more devastating than either than either of those two things. Uh, do, do you recall uh, what 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 he did after? Um, yes. Uh, after I mean, reading about um, it, both based on the concern of a natural pandemic and also, frankly, the concern about potential biological terrorism. Uh, the president had a very clear priority with us and with the Health and Human Services and the other agencies to put together and adequately resource a plan for dealing with the pandemic. And we spent a considerable amount of time uh, over the next year or two, particularly as avian flu became uh, a real concern, putting together a detailed plan for responding to a pandemic, making sure we had adequate supplies in place, working through how the supplies would be distributed and having all this nailed down. And frankly, when we did the transition in 2009, we actually ran an exercise with the incoming Obama administration for half a day, simulating some kind of a, of a medical pandemic so that they would get rapidly up to speed because we were worried about H1N1. So this was, a, the president was personally involved in this and as was Tony Fauci, by the way. Tony Fauci. And, and do, do, do you recall what, uh, when, when President Bush first brought this up with you? It was sometime in 2005. Yeah. I mean, we, as you observed, we had a lot going on. We had terrorism, we had Iraq, we had hurricanes. But in, in, in the middle of all that, we also realized we had to prepare for some kind of a biological event. And do, do you think that we did, did we as a federal government keep our uh, keep our eye on that ball? I mean, it, 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 it had a lot of action, as you said, uh, in, in 2005. Uh, it was resourced. You had you had all that you described. I've read about and, and remember and remember covering. And then you had the, um, you know, the H1N1 as 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 Obama was coming in. Um, but, you know, other issues come come up and um, and, and, the, and the priority kind of kind of it seems to me fade away a bit and then you know ebola happens whoa it goes up again how do you how do you keep a consistent level of of of, of preparedness for something like this well that's always a challenge and um you know the question of urgency um is always in a in a bit of a battle with complacency and particularly as you succeed in adequately dealing with these issues there can be a tendency maybe to over relax i mean i do think the obama administration did a good job, again, responding to H1N1, um, and they, I, they continued to focus on this. I know my successors did, but I think in the last couple of years, 
um, this became a lower priority and I, um, we got a little bit rusty, shall we say. All right, uh, Secretary, former Secretary of Homeland Security, Executive Chairman of the Chertoff Group, Michael Chertoff, thank you. It's always, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, always learn something new, thank you. Right, and be well, thank you. Okay. So, so Rick, I, I think that uh, interesting comments there on 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 the on the on, on all of those subjects, uh, but I was I was struck by how forceful he was critical of uh, of the Trump administration in in the handling of Portland. Um, I, 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 you know, that this is that they seem to be pushing this too far. This is not what the Department of Homeland Security was formed to do, and I think you hear that clearly from a man who was there, you know, toward the beginning of the of DHS's tenure. And I think his point about the that's right, a Republican. And I think his point about the politicization of this uh, is key. The, the, the president has gone out of his way to make clear this is, you know, these the are cities that are run by Democrats, which does add to that perception. He's also uh, said explicitly that uh, the, the more things like what's happening in Portland, things that are happening, of course, in Donald Trump's America, would be happening in Joe Biden's America if he were elected president. He's on the air with multiple um, very misleading ads, I, I, I should mention, talking about the what a Biden presidency would mean for law and order. Interestingly, John, in our ABC News Washington Post poll that came out over the weekend, Joe Biden had an edge, a nine-point edge, in handling uh, issues around uh, crime and justice and, and, and law and order. Uh, that's an edge that, that President Trump can't afford. Uh, and, and, and ultimately, this battle that is raging now between federal authorities and even local authorities, it feels like a, a real battle in, in cities like Portland and now Chicago and some others coming online as the, as the president uh, ups this a little bit more. That is about the suburbs, and it's a play—it's a play to the suburbs that the president has made very clear is political. So to have people like Secretary uh, Under Secretary Wolf talking about this in a, in a in a detailed way and these these wide this wide view of what the authority is as as ordered by the president who's made it political, I think it just it adds to uh, it adds to the tension that's playing out because this is this is this is a pretty dramatic thing happening in Portland and and. Uh, president wants it to happen in other places as well. And, and the maddening thing is that, is that there is an issue underneath all of this. And I mean, there, there, there is a, we, we, we do see uh, increasing crime uh, in, in Portland. You do, I mean, we have seen attacks on that courthouse and on other, you know, on, on businesses and on other government property. We have seen, uh, you know, violence. We have seen people, you know, hijacking a legitimate protest movement. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the, the local leaders in Portland don't want to see the, the, um, the, the courthouse in their city torched. I mean, the, the only way you, you deal with something like this is cooperatively, not by turning it into like a political issue and, you know, running ads simultaneously as you're sending in, you know, commandos, um, you know, against the will of local leaders. It, 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 I mean, we actually we've seen the impact in Portland. It's gotten worse. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, um, uh, the, 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 this did not quell unrest in Portland. This, this contributed to unrest in Portland. And, and I, think, uh, I think there is a role for federal agents, federal authorities to help. And uh, Chicago would be a more interesting test case because the president has talked about this in the same court of bellicose manner, very belligerent um, about the, the need to, to get a hold of Chicago. The mayor has made clear she's not going to stand by and allow unmarked agents to go round people up. Um, but the, Chicago is, is, is undergoing an absolutely brutal summer of violence, and there are areas where uh, even the mayor would, would very much invite federal assistance. Uh, whether, whether the president It can't be against her will. About, though, it can't well, be federal assistance fighting local assistance. And as you pointed out in your exchange with, with the White House press secretary, the idea that this is about 
you know, protecting federal property has its has its severe limits. I mean, that's that that's, that's just not... which is why you know it's why I asked the questions. I, I legitimately wanted to know what. I mean, I I'd been told that this was the authority they were citing, but they hadn't said it on the record. Um, and, and now, you know, the, the, the White House press secretary is on the record that the authority that they are driving here, uh, basing this on, is the authority uh, to deputize agents to protect uh, federal property. Um, so, I mean, that's, there seems to be some clear limitations on that. I also asked her how they saw those limitations, and it seems to be if you're in immediate pursuit of somebody attacking federal property, that's one thing. But like as Chertoff said, you can't kind of be roaming around the streets of a city and rounding people up you you suspect of doing bad things that's that's not you know that that is that is not in the statute that uh that the press secretary cited all right rick um we've got a uh, we got another big day here at the white house abc news is pool so i'm coming to you uh from our our booth here right off the uh right off the briefing room uh no nothing on the schedule by way of a of another uh, briefing but um but we shall see we shall see. Uh, he's been known to surprise us in the past. Yeah, I mean, as we talked about, a big, a, a big shift from this president to, to, to begin to, to move in this direction. Um, and back to back, rewinding the clock a bit for you, John. I, this was this was your this was your life back in you know, March, <laughs> April, every day. Uh, with this extraordinary every day thing, coming right? in here. Yeah, yeah. Multiple yeah, questions yeah. of the president every day, and and that went away for a while, and now it looks like it's uh, it's back at least in some form. All right. All right. That's all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. Trevor Hastings, our chief executive godfather of this show. Uh, Thank you, Avery Miller, the one that actually does all the work and our entire uh, Powerhouse Politics team. We will be back next week.